Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 104. Very exciting. Um, okay, as far as some announcements at the top, there's not a whole lot except uh, I've been a guest on a number of other shows lately uh, that you can go and listen to. I was on the Red Box Report talking about uh, the Monuments Men. Uh, it's fine. Spoilers. It's fine. You you should still listen to that episode, but here's my opinion. It's fine. Um, I was on a show that the title of which I can't even say on this podcast. It's uh, so I'll just say it's uh, WTF. Are you watching? Um, and I was talking with my friend Kyle Anderson about the film. No holds barred. It is a ridiculous, terrible movie. It's one of the dumbest movies I've ever seen, but boy, oh boy, is it good. Uh, and I also want to apologize, by the way. You may occasionally hear uh, some gardeners uh, outside with their leaf blowers and stuff like that. Uh, there goes one right now. And maybe you hear, maybe you don't. I don't know. I, some, it mystifies me sometimes what the mic will and will not pick up. But uh, uh, hopefully that doesn't last much longer. Uh, my guest and I, we, we put it off as long as we could, hoping that they would finish. Uh, and uh, they usually don't go this long. So I don't know, maybe they, maybe there's a particularly troublesome pile of leaves. So, um, okay. And I think as far as announcements, I think that, oh, okay. All right. So, uh, Listeners know that I occasionally contribute to post-show recaps, which is uh, the narrative wing of Rob Sesternino's podcasting empire. But if you go to robhasawebsite.com and click on blogs and scroll down a little bit, and you'll see a blog written by me called Mutant Survivor. And here's what it is. This is so stupid. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't even be talking about it, but I'm kind of proud of it. So uh, this last season of Survivor was brains, bronze, and uh, brains, brawn, and beauty. The three tribes were separated based on, you know, those three things. So I decided to uh, say, all right, <clears throat> if if there were to be a season of Survivor that was split up that way, but everybody on the show was a character from the X-Men universe, uh, how would that split up and how would it go? So if you click on Mutant Survivor, you will see what I think the tribes should be based on uh, brains, brawn, and beauty. And uh, there's a little bit of discussion below about who will win. What I like is that people are engaging with this in the spirit in which it was uh, written. Uh, Nobody is shouting out nerd, as they should, this is a mixture of, of comic book nerd and reality show nerd. So uh, 
I'm so sorry. But I also am still rather proud of it because I put more thought into it than I probably should have. So, okay. I think that is about it. What I will say is that my co-host, Josh Long, is out of town right now. uh, But he will be back next week. I know that for sure because that mini-sode has already been recorded. Uh, But... I have with me kind of my go-to guest host, which seems strange considering how much I actually, like how little I enjoy this person's company, but he's, he's, he's good on a podcast. So it's, it's fine. Uh, it's our old friend, Robert Hornack. Robert. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I feel like the Tony Randall of more than one lesson. That could not be more correct. (laughs) In a lot of ways. Wait a minute. I could see you playing Felix Unger. Oh, boy. Very easily. I do have nasal issues. Occasionally. Fair enough. Do and you ever I, do that That little, huh, do you ever, uh, ever do that? No, but I, I did have messy roommates. Okay, well, there you go. But then I was a messy roommate, too, on occasion. Oh, all right. Yeah. Because you have to have one messy guy. The other guy if the other guy's clean, you have to be messy. Yin and yin. Otherwise, otherwise, what purpose would they have? Exactly. They would serve no purpose at all. Like they would me be on without an identity. Exactly. Um, well, thank you, Robert. Once again, uh, no, you've shown why we keep having you on. It's, uh, I think it's my fifth. I'm a five-timer. Are you a five? Okay, hang on now. Hang on now. Woody Allen. Yes. Black Swan. Yes. Looper. Loved it. Testimony episode. Loved it. Here we go, number five. <laughs> number five. No matter what we talk about at this point, the Five Timer Club, I, I'm which honored, I believe is only you. I'm honored by my. I'm inducted by just being here. I love it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No work required from this point on. <laughs> well, put in a little bit of effort. I'd like to you maybe. Know. Now I was uh, the 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 blog that you put up. Mm-hmm. I was I was I can only be comforted by the topic of this if you can if you can prove that the the median age of the commenters was twelve. Uh, probably not. If I had to guess, I would say they are all my age. And by the way, I will say I'm 32 and what with the internet and just the general culture, I would say it is very common for people age 25 to 35 to act 12. Yes. You are at the moment sitting in a room and when an entire wall has been dedicated to my action figures and figurines of the Riddler. I've been trying not to look at it. Why? Because it's too marvelous? Because it's so awesome. Yeah. Are you worried your face will melt off? Like in Indiana, Indiana Jones, don't look at it? Oh, I can't. Uh, but in this case, it's because it's just too wonderful. And, and admittedly, nobody is uh, worthy of looking at it except me because I put this collection together. And there's still so many things. There's a brand new Riddler action figure that looks so wonderful. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, okay. Uh, one thing before we move on to the actual, uh, topic of the episode, uh, Robert brought this up and I think it is worth mentioning. Uh, Robert, the last time you were on, you gave your testimony. It got heavy. It got very heavy and it was very powerful. Uh, got a lot of, I mean, it sounds weird to say a lot of compliments on that episode, but people really, liked that episode really they were very engaged by that episode and so uh and you and you were very open about how you how you've been doing these days and and all that and uh you know it wasn't 
a hundred percent positive all the time. Right. You know, I, I don't know if anybody's ever a hundred percent positive, whether they're Christian or not. Um, I mean, everybody has issues that they deal with and that sort of thing. But, uh, one of the things that people found refreshing is how honest you okay. were about sure. not glossing over the, the frustration and the sadness and, the doubt. and stuff and the doubt that you, that you deal with. Uh, so you you suggested that uh, that maybe you could give uh, just a, a brief update yeah. on how you're doing now for those that extremely might be brief. All I would say really is that um, it was probably about two weeks after the uh, the last podcast that mm-hmm. I I found a counselor um, through some people I know and started off and on six months or so of just kind of talking mm-hmm. and it's uh, as a podcaster you must know how therapeutic just talking can be oh yeah at times and so to have someone sort of uh i guess dispassionately you know uh letting you bend their ear yeah you know uh was very very good for me and so i got a lot of stuff talked out and it became i think the reason i stopped going was because um, it, I felt like it was becoming like a gripe session. It's like just something that might have happened that week that was like frustrating me. Oh yeah, I'd start talking about that, and he let me go because for him, he felt like well, that's that sort of plugs into probably the the broader overarching yeah. troubles that you have in life. And I guess so, but for me, it just felt like it was getting a bit self indulgent. So so I stopped going, but I I can see definitely going again. It's extremely helpful. I feel like I'm in a much better place now than I was. Yeah, that day. I mean, that was like the middle of one of the worst weeks ever. So yeah. Um. So it, it wouldn't have taken much to 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 be better than that. But I feel like I'm in a much better place now, all around. All right. Well, I'm sure the listeners are very happy to hear that. Um. And I am as well. <laughs> if I guess if I if you twist my arm, Thanks, I would Tyler. say I'm happy that you're doing better. Thank you. Um. But yeah, I know that people, it's not so much that they like expressed concern, like they emailed me and said, and said, I'm really worried about this Robert guy. <laughs> it wasn't that, but they're just like, oh, that is unfortunate that he's dealing with these things, but it's also understandable given, you know, some of the stuff that you've had to deal with in the past. Right. And so, um, so I'm sure they're very happy to know that, uh, that you're doing better now. So thank you for that update. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, and I will say, I put this out there, um, I'm somebody who has benefited greatly from counseling. I mean, mm. anybody who listens to this and my other show knows that uh, my problems are not all solved. Uh, I will remain a fairly insecure person uh, dealing with deep issues of paranoia and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, but it is tr- you're absolutely right. It is tremendous just talking and having somebody not even necessarily give you advice, but just engage with you and not try to necessarily fix you right just the acknowledgement that you're broken and trying to figure out why and if there can be something done about it and and of course there almost always can be um it's very it's very i would say it's very therapeutic but it's called therapy for a reason exactly. um and so uh so yes it is a thing that uh, that i highly recommend actually one of the things one that was frustrating another. about counseling for me was that i wasn't getting advice I wanted there to be like, do this and things will be, will be better or you'll stop thinking about this kind of thing or this yeah. thing will go away. But it was more like um, questions. You know, yep. you say something about what, what's gone on or what you're thinking about and then questions from him become what you talk about. And I was frustrated by that because, I, yeah. you know, you want, you want one, two, three, go. 
Yeah, you're paying the money. Yeah. Fix me. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not that. And ultimately, I mean, once... Now I can look back at it. Yeah, it was... I guess I stopped going about two months ago. Mm-hmm. And now that it's sort of in the back, you know, the rearview mirror, I can say that, that that approach by him with regard to me was obviously the best because it, it, it makes you think for yourself. Yeah. If you arrive at a place because of a pointed question, you arrive there on your own, mm-hmm. um, somehow it, I feel like it's more immediately applied than if somebody says, here's what I suggest. Yeah. And then even if you ask them, why do you suggest that? Unless you're really locked into their mindset, it can be harder to implement. But if you arrive there yourself, you've already started implementation. Right. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the, the question method has always uh, worked best for me. But, um, but we will move on um, to today's discussion, which is about Michael Clayton, written and directed by Tony Gilroy in the year 2007. One of the best movie years ever. Hmm. Refresh my memory. Oh, boy. By the way, I saw Michael Collins instead. I apologize. Oh, no. Okay, well, hang on. I'll Let wing it. Think of, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll go with, uh, oh, gosh, we'll go with the Molly Maguires for the companion film, and let's make it work. Okay. Um, Molly Maguires, by the way, a wonderful film. Um, 2007, yeah. Uh, and incidentally, uh, there is a premium episode of Battleship Pretension in which David myself, Jason Eakin, and Scott and I all talk about 2007 and the hmm. movies that came out. It's a wonderful year. Uh, you got your No Country for Old Men. Oh, wow. Yeah. There Will Be Blood. Wow. Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. In my queue, but wow. Zodiac. Yes. Um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Oof, good. Ratatouille, which good. I'm a big fan of. Yeah, um, like gosh, there's. it's, so fr- it's frustrating because there are a bunch, and now I can't think of any... Well, that's, I mean, that's a list right there. That's good. Yeah. But there are, there's easily like five or six more right. that are great. Um, the Savages. Did you ever see The Savages? Was that uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman? Yes, and, and Laura Lenny. I, I remember I had it in my possession at once, but I didn't watch it. Oh, boy. I, no, 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 I did. Okay. I did. I just don't remember much about it. Uh, it's very good. I, I think it's great I performances. It's, obviously. Yes, very much so. Laura Lenny, I believe was nominated for an Oscar for it. Mm. And, uh, should she have won? I don't know. I didn't see love and Rose, but anyway, um, but yeah. And, and I wish I had more, uh, in front of me, but it's, it was a really wonderful year. Like go back and look I at some of the best movies and you'll be astounded. Um, there goes those leaf blowers again. Ah. How many leaves can there be? <laughs> it's summertime. Um, so yeah, Michael Clayton, written and directed by Tony Gilroy, who uh, is a screenwriter who, by this time, had written a number of things. Primarily, uh, was known for uh, the Bourne films. Yes, uh, and since then he's uh, he's directed Duplicity and The Bourne Legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not see either one. I heard Bourne Legacy not that good. Duplicity looked uh, fun. Um, it was kind of a clever, uh, vaguely kind of a heist or maybe a con hmm. type movie. But Michael Clayton, I remember at the time when it came out, I liked 
the idea of it. It's the kind of movie that I would have loved in high school. And I remember thinking like, wow, they just named this Michael Clayton. That's not a remarkably interesting name. And were it based on a real person, that would make a lot more sense. Like a Michael Collins, for example. Mm -hmm. But as it is, it's just an uninteresting name. Like John Carter. Let's put $200 million behind a movie called John Carter. I'd see Michael Clayton of Mars. Michael Cl- Oh, my gosh. If it's this story, on but Mars. it's on Mars. Awesome. Oh, my gosh. Um, but, yeah, so uh, so I wasn't remarkably interested, interested in seeing the movie. I was a little bit, because especially once the reviews started coming out, and people said that George Clooney was doing some really remarkable work. Um, but I actually wound up seeing it... Uh, on a uh, on a screener uh, at home, so I didn't go see in the big uh, on the big screen. Uh, and at the time, I thought this is this movie's pretty good. Um, not great, nothing amazing, but it's it's pretty good. And then it's just one of those movies that stuck with me: scenes, lines, entire characters, uh, and it just grew in my mind. And then I bought it. And then I watched it again, and I thought, this is better than I thought. Then I watched it again, and I thought, this movie might be great. This is remarkably rewatchable, and there is some amazing stuff going on. And I've now arrived at where I am now, which is Michael Clayton is a wonderful movie. It's not insanely challenging, um, but we do get to engage with characters that are sometimes uh, hard to watch from an emotional standpoint. The stuff that they, I've said this on the show before and I have a hard time talking about it because I have a hard time explaining it because there are movies that have, you know, big emotions big yeah i mean they can be anger it can be sadness it can be depression uh things that it would seem would be hard to watch but somehow the way they're treated the way they're written the way it's directed they're easy to watch mm-hmm. but then there are movies that deal with very raw emotion that's almost impossible to watch like a john cassavetti's film for example sure um, just saw a woman under the influence or a woman under the influence for the first time for the first time, uh, about a month ago. What'd you think? Oh my gosh. Um, <clears throat> there's a, there's the scene, there's many scenes, but the, the scene where all of his friends are over and they fix spaghetti Yeah. and she's, this is before she goes away for a while. Right. And it's, the scene goes on. I, I, I realized after about 15 minutes, the scene is still going on Yeah. and it's so uncomfortable. And you really feel for this woman, but at the same time, you just kind of want to sit her down, like strap her down or something. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think the this, this scene is actually about 20, 25 minutes long, all by itself, about 20 minutes. Probably. Really long. Um, but the movie, it, you by the way, it, wouldn't, like you've it lived, wouldn't surprise me if it was 10 minutes long and it felt longer. That was, that is kind of a, uh, no, I rewound it. Style. Rewound. I, I backed it up. And ah, then, yes. uh-huh. And then, uh, but scene after scene is like that, where you're you feel like you're living in that house, yeah. Because the camera just it's documentary style, yeah. It's just what a fantastic movie, yeah. And that's and that's yeah, and that's a great example. I mean, you you're spending time with these people, and you're 
engaging with them. Sometimes you like them. Sometimes you don't. It's very. It's much more human than you find in a lot of movies yeah. where anyone we know, there are times when they bother us. There are times yeah. when we really love them or we love them the whole time, but that doesn't mean that they don't bother us. Uh, and Michael Clayton is a movie that in many ways seems like it could be the first category where we're dealing with a, a movie that's vaguely moralizing and is just about a guy who works for a vaguely corrupt law, f- law mm-hmm. firm and stuff like, you know, it's, it's not breaking any new ground. And so, oh, this guy's got major doubts. I bet they're the kind of doubts I can really watch and enjoy. <laughs> but between George Clooney and Tom Wilkinson and Tilda Swinton, there's a kind of nervous energy in some of these characters, Tilda Swinton especially. And even Tom Wilkinson, who plays a character who's going off the edge, but not in the way that's fun to watch. There's a manic quality that makes me that makes you uncomfortable. Well, see, if I kept thinking if it was if you put Howard Beale. Oh yeah, if you put Howard Beale in a straight up drama versus a satire. Yeah, this is kind of how it would come off. Just kind of really you want to want to look away instead of look at. Well, and even Howard Beale is very watchable and fun mm-hmm. up until the point at the end of his monologues when he faints, and then you realize, oh, this is uncomfortable. I was I was on board with everything he was saying. I was on board with his breakdown until. I'm reminded just how much of a breakdown it is. Right. And that's how I feel about Tom Wilkinson. But then Tilda Swinton, like her character is just so terrified all the time that that emotion gets conveyed to you. And it's just, all this feels just so uncomfortable and so emotionally dirty and messy that this movie that could have been very conventional. And in many ways it is, it feels much more vital immediate and immediate. There's an immediacy to it. You're absolutely right. Um, that for me makes it, you know, I'm glued to the screen when I watch it and it seems like the kind of thing that I wouldn't want to revisit cause I don't want to be that emotionally exhausted. But I think because of the arc, um, and because of the way it's shot and the way it's, you know, the way it's written and stuff, um, it does bear multiple viewings. So I've been talking for a while what is your experience I saw, uh, with um, Michael Clayton? I saw it the only time I well, I saw it in 2007 when it came out. Mm-hmm. I was seeing a lot more movies. I don't know what the motivation was specifically to see that movie because I mean I'm not such a huge George Clooney fan. I'd never heard of Tony Gilroy really mm-hmm. up to that point. Um, so I don't know what drew me to it. Maybe a friend was going to see it, but I saw it and I remember in the theater I was confused almost from the first scene because the the way Tony uh, the way Gilroy writes it. Mm-hmm. And then shoots it, uh, he doesn't necessarily provide you with all the information you need to understand the relationships between these characters. Yeah. Um, And then, so I kind of came away from the movie going, oh, I I guess it just wasn't for me or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I forget because I I was so confused. I just walked away and just expunged it from my memory, I guess. And I didn't think about it again, I promise you, until you said, or I saw it on the list of possible, possible movies and I saw it there. I was like, hmm. Yeah, I remember, I, in my mind, I was like, I remember liking that. I think what I was re- recalling was kind of the slickness. Mm-hmm. It's very slickly made, just really clean, and and uh, it moves. The scenes yeah. are like minute-long scenes, two-minute-long scenes, generally. And it does seem somehow appropriate, maybe not even appropriate, then. Maybe that's not the word, but... Tony Gilroy is a guy who wrote action movies. Yes, exactly. I was going to make that point, actually. And he makes this 
drama. It's an emotional action movie. Yeah, it still feels like that. Yeah. Because it's just it's moving, and there's it's not there, there's not a car chase. Yeah. There's obviously a couple of explosions. Yeah. It's propulsive. It's very propulsive, and I guess the old you know screenwriting one hundred and one. Every scene gives you more information or more detail about someone's sliminess mm-hmm. or someone's um, anxiety in Tom yeah. Wilkinson's character or why they're anxious. And when it opens, uh, the opening shots are a guy pushing the cart down the hall before they get into the into the big. Uh, uh, lawyer's conference room where they're mm-hmm. trying to move this thing through. But over that shot is uh, Wilkinson's character. You don't even, you don't know anything. Obviously it's the first shot of the movie. Yeah. Um, but it's his tirade. It's what of, of me, initially made me think of Howard Beale because the things he's saying are so almost biblically huge yeah. in terms of how awful he is because of what he's been connected to at this law firm. And, uh, and it's from that moment on, you're like, I, it pulls it just pulls you in yeah so yeah it's a it's a very compulsive movie yeah um and very rewatchable because of the shortness of the scenes and the immediacy all of it just kind of feeds into that much different than um a woman under the influence which it has these long drawn out scenes and yeah. i i don't know that i'll ever watch that movie again now that i've sat through it once and enjoyed it but i don't know if i'm gonna live in that world again but this movie i could see again in fact um I started it, watching it last night, and I got half an hour in, and then started cooking dinner, and then Aubrey came home, and I said, I need to watch this movie tonight. You want to watch it? I couldn't just have her start it half an hour in, so we started yeah. again, and I was pulled in again, even though I had just seen it. It was like yeah. that good that you you just sucked right in. It's just a really good movie. Yeah, it's it's a film that, and I think maybe this is a function of, of Tony Gilroy kind of coming up uh, in action. And it's specifically, specifically an espionage type of action, um, is that because uh, action is supposed to get you immediately on board with what's happening and get you invested. And so from Tom Wilkinson's character and, and the fact that his voice is over, not him, it's over these right. other images, you're not sure how they connect and you just already you're just trying at the very least you're engaged because you're trying to figure this out. But then also, so it's a great First off, it's a great introduction to the movie, but it's also a great character introduction. And then, to me, Tilda Swinton's introduction to the film is astounding. Now, it's worth noting she did win an Oscar. She won Best Supporting Actress. For oh, she film. did. Yeah. I didn't know that. And uh, deserved. I, I think so. I, she's I great. She's wonderful. She's basically the villain. And, you know, uh, David and I, over at Battleship Pretension, we regularly talk about how, yes... Villains who are in control all the time can be very frightening. You got your Anton Chigurhs, for example, mm-hmm. um, or perhaps, uh, your Anton's Chigur, which is a <laughs> it's a joke I like making. Um, William Sapphire. But there's but there's something about a villain who is scared and nervous and maybe dumb. Not that I th- not that I think Tilda Swinton's character is dumb, but like for example. Um, uh, Don Cheadle's character in uh, Out of Sight. Mm. His character's dumb, and he has a gun. Yeah. Can you think of anything worse? An idiot with a gun. Mm-hmm. You know. And in this case, you have a woman who is, first off, always very aware that she's a woman in a man's world, and so she's got something to prove. She's scared of losing her job. She wants to be the best, and she's terrified. And that creates desperation, which literally means she'll do anything. 
she's willing to do anything. Yeah. A terrified person with no, with, with no moral, uh, not no morals. I'm sure she th- believes in right and wrong, but no, feels that is not what governs her. Terror and desperation trumps morality. That's an amazing villain. I think, right? And it's oh, absolutely. one that's engaging and one that you relate to. Yeah. I mean, we've all been scared at some point. Well, it's, and I, I keep going back to you calling her the villain because virtually every antagonist, I guess I could say. Well, even that, because there's no one in this movie outside of possibly Tom Wilkinson is clean. Right. Well, he's obviously not clean. And that's why he's behaving the way he is because he realizes he's not clean. But no one else, I mean, even Michael Clayton, the so called hero of the movie, you know he's he's self-serving and and he's petty yeah. and he's uh, self-loathing and all of these things um it doesn't doesn't make him exactly heroic right he's aware of his own uh sadness i think and and weakness and it shows in his face and his character and i it's not the kind of person that you would want to hang around i mean obviously they doll him up a little bit it's, it's, story-wise or character-wise by giving him a son that he loves and yeah um all of this and he treats his family well and all this kind of thing but he's not outside of the fact that he's george clooney so he must be the hero Mm -hmm. he's not really heroic until the very end well and that's and first off the movie's named after him uh right and we do know that and he's a dynamic character which is to say he has an arc we see him changing and it is interesting that by the time the film starts it doesn't start and he's this slick shark who doesn't question his choices at all. And then over the course of the film, he does. When the film starts, he's already in a place where he's not happy with mm-hmm. the direction his life has gone. Yeah. So he's already kind of, if he's not already in transition, he's right on the brink. Um, and then we see Tom Wilkinson's character who is in a state of transition. Mm-hmm. Um, but can't handle it and so it just tony gilroy makes so many choices that turn out to be the right just the right choice to draw to as you say draw you in and Mm -hmm. make you interested by having tom wilkinson be a certain type of manically crazy and um and verbose right um by having tilda swinton be a certain type of i'd say she's the villain just because she's the one that drives the action Mm -hmm. she drives the negative action and obviously Uh, she kills a couple of people she does kill a couple of people not not directly uh but she hires again that speaks to the the desperation her Mm -hmm. desperation causes people to die right (laughs) i would venture to say that means she's the villain yeah um fair enough as you would say but I guess that is a thing I say a lot. Sorry, everybody. Apparently, everything's fair, or at least fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Um, but uh, but but it, but she's a villain. You maybe not that you care about, but that you relate to, that you understand. You're very sympathetic to her uh, when she. There's this wonderful sequence uh, when she's she's practicing what she's going to say at this interview. Yeah, I believe it, it is her introduction, her character introduction. Yeah, the first time you see her is. Uh, real real quick and she's like in a mirror you don't know the context exactly and she yeah. hears a noise off to the side and she's got sweat stains on her yeah under uh, armpits and whatnot she's a disheveled yeah desperate woman from the very first time you see her but then you see this the sequence where she's she's that and she's practicing lines intercut 
with her delivering the lines at the interview, very calm, very assured. That's such, I was thinking about this the second time I watched it through with Aubrey, just how, how smart that is. Mm-hmm. I don't recall anything quite like that before where, where your introduction to this character is, uh, allows you to, from that point on, know no matter how confident they're speaking, they're actually terrified on the inside. Yeah. It's just a great way to, to kind of present that information. And I would say it's – the character is talking, so I won't say it's primarily visual, but it is essentially a visual cue done through editing, mm-hmm. by which literally it under everything she says, no matter how – like you said, no matter how confident she is – Everything can be undercut. This is what's behind it. Yep. If she says something with confidence, chances are she said it 50 times in her hotel room. <laughs> exactly. Drenched in sweat and terrified. Mm-hmm. And just, and it makes the character a little bit pathetic. Yep. And you can't have, you can't have a character be sympathetic without having her be pathetic. Right. Um, but only when you see the extent to which she's willing to go, do you understand just how, how far down the rabbit hole she, her desperation goes and, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that's another wonderful character introduction. And even the, the introduction of, of Michael, at least as far as his job goes, I believe the first introduction is, is him looking at horses and stuff and then his car explodes. Right. Um, which is already kind of an odd thing. You don't expect, uh, but his introduction is a guy. Um, I think the first time you see him, he's playing cards. Am I, am I wrong? He's playing cards and he gets called away for his job right. where he's, he's basically like this sort of fixer, right? Bag a, man, they call firm, him. a bag man at a law firm. And one of the clients for this law firm has, hit a pedestrian with his car and is driven away and he needs someone to get him out of this. So they send Michael Clayton and he asks him questions and he runs through everything. And then he basically says, here is the name of a lawyer and this is not good enough for this guy. No, not at all. And, and there's a wonderful line where, um, the guy says, I was promised a miracle worker. And he says, I'm not a miracle worker. I'm a janitor. That that's, that is how he sees himself from the outset of the film. Mm-hmm. So all again, already there's all there's some self loathing going on, and he knows he he's already pretty disillusioned with what he does for a living. Um, but that's the thing: the film and the the, the fact that he's playing cards makes him kind of cool. He's played by George Clooney, mm-hmm. which makes him the most cool. <laughs> But the very first thing we see is him admitting, there's only so much I can do. I'm actually not cap- I'm not all-powerful. I'm not yeah. all-capable. He says, what you need is a trial lawyer. Yeah. And it's just such a... Again, and we're not going to go through every part of the film, um, because really, when talking about the movie and what's so great about it, one need really only talk about the beginning, because the whole film is stuff like that. Mm-hmm where it undercuts your expectations and it, or it undercuts what you're being presented with to get to the heart of what's actually there. And it's just, it is, it really is a wonderful film that I feel like everybody could enjoy from a teenager 
you know, from like a, a, a faux cynical teenager to a 50 year old who's been around a while and knows, you know, how the world works right. from an idealist to, you know, uh, a, a realist optimist, pessimist. It doesn't matter. I think everybody can watch this and get something out of it because it's an acknowledgement from a thematic standpoint. It's an acknowledgement of how the world works, but that that's not, that it's not hopeless. And so I think everybody can get behind that. And I want to, I want to break down a couple of things real quick, specifically performances, um, because it is, I'll say this, it's a writer's movie. And it's an actor's movie, which is why it surprised me so much that it was nominated for, among other things, picture, director, and original score. <laughs> now, I will say this. Part of me feels like it should be... No- I've, I've almost talked myself into thinking it should be nominated for editing. Because some of that editing was really... It was fantastic. It was fantastic. And, and, it's, and it's counterintuitive, but so effective. Um, but yeah, but it was also nominated for original screenplay, actor, supporting actor, and then supporting actress, which it won. Um, was Wilkinson nominated for Best Supporting? Yeah. Oh, well. That makes sense. It makes sense. It's a showy performance, but I still like the way he does well, it. Well, it's showy. Uh, um, there's a scene where uh, where Clooney's been following him or trying to find where he is. Mm-hmm. He's basically lost in New York, and he finally finds him in an alley holding a bag of bread. Yeah. And there's that scene where, uh, and Aubrey uh, and I talked about this afterwards, it's like, was he crazy or was he faking it? And that scene is the seed of doubt about whether he was actually crazy. And I would say that he was never crazy. He's basically just uh, reacting to the fact that he's not on his meds. Yeah. But that scene, in that scene, uh, Clooney uh, kind of confronts him and says, you know, some things about how he should be living his life, and and uh, and that he's he wants to put him in a place that can help him. He says, "You need help." And yeah. He says, I, "Whatever else happens, you need help." He says, well, I'm not going to go get help. And, and he, you know, earlier in the film, he's announced as like the greatest, like the person that would know the most about um, admission into institutions. Like, yeah. like, can you self-admit yourself versus being forced? And so he starts spouting off all this stuff about the law mm-hmm. and his eyes are super clear yeah. and his poise. He suddenly kind of rises out of his craziness, if you will, yeah. and uh, is spouting all this stuff. And he's saying, I I I will not go there and you will not get me in court because you don't want to see me in court. Yeah. You don't want me in court. Yeah. Against you. And when he says that, it's like wow, he's he's completely lucid. Yeah. He's completely uh uh of everything that he knows and all the power that, you know, his years of being a lawyer yeah. imbue him with. And uh and so it, it kind of begs the question, but but that's the beauty of, and that's why I'm saying this now, is because bouncing off of what you said, the performance is so good that you believe both because it because it is both. I think he, I think in the in the screenplay, he sees it like I think you're absolutely right. He's a character who is off his meds, and you know, uh, I am on antidepressants, and I know that if I go a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Certainly, if I go three days without taking it, which has happened once, it happened once by accident, and everyone could tell. Wow, my wife can certainly could certainly tell. I was I was just I was still me, and I still sounded like me, but everything was just a little bit heightened, and uh, and that's what it is. It's a man who, first off, he's off his meds, 
but he also has a renewed purpose and he's been questioning his life. So it's all this stuff happening at once and it will come across as extreme and heightened because of this other element. But that doesn't change the fact that he still has purpose and he's still him. Mm -hmm. You know, even in the, even when I was like really in the throes of depression and, and, you know, and my wife's, my wife sometimes said like, I I feel like I don't even recognize you. Mm. Even in the midst of that, I was still me and I still had moments where I did well and and that sort of thing. And that, that scene is great because it's, and part of it comes with this idea that he saw Michael as sort of on his side. And in this moment, he's starting to see him otherwise. And that's, that scene ends wonderfully where after that monologue, Michael says, Arthur, I'm not the enemy. And then he says, well, then what are you? Who are you? Yeah. It's all wonderful. I love it. Um, and it's lines like that. And that's the thing. Lines like that, they could be oversold, but they're not. And that's why like casting it just right is, is great. I'm a big fan of Tom Wilkinson. I like the way I like when he chooses to underplay things, but he can also overplay them. I think he was wonderful as Falcone in Batman begins. Hmm. But I also thought he was amazing in, in the bedroom. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I will say that uh, George Clooney, nominated for Best Actor for this film, uh, one of the things that he does so wonderfully is that he plays a guy who used to be George Clooney. <laughs> it's good, great but he's not it. anymore. Yeah. He's a, still a good-looking guy. Looks a little ragged right now. And like, yes, he's, he still looks good in a suit, but it looks a little bit, just a little bit more rumpled. It's like, it's this guy who's just, just start, just starting a downturn. Yeah. Um, and that's not merely in how he looks. It's just his posture, the way he carries himself, the way he delivers lines, the, the tension that's always there and the frustration with who he is. And, and the characters and the performance just isn't as charismatic as you normally get from a George Clooney. I mean, look a couple years later in Up in the Air, where that's also a character, by the way, who's who's very confident but is questioning himself. But you, when you see him at his most charming, it's astounding. The like, word charm, yeah. George um, Clooney is a movie star. Yeah, Michael Clayton is not. No, there's a scene. Uh, uh, probably in the first 45 minutes or so. It's the first time you actually see uh, Michael Clayton, and uh, I, I wish I knew her character's name, but uh, uh, Tilda Swinton's character. Karen Crowder. Karen. Yes, Karen. So they're meeting, uh, they're having a meeting, you know, at a restaurant or something, and he's kind of laying on the charm that you would expect George Clooney to, you know, possess in yeah. a scene like that. And it just goes nowhere with this woman. Yeah. And there's a kind of a crumbling sort of aspect to his charm even in that scene yeah and part of me wonders as i think about that scene a you you had to have a scene kind of early on with these two people Mm -hmm. but b it really does feed into this anti-george clooney or post george clooney george clooney um because here's a scene where he should be winning this woman over and he just can't do it and you feel like in the past he might have been able to yes or at the very least he could have kept up the charm throughout even if he wasn't winning her over he would have been unflappable. Right. But now he can only go as far. And if she was buying into it, maybe that would have helped him. But the minute she shuts, starts to shut him down, he gets shut down. Right. Um, and it is, 
I think it's probably very hard for somebody who has a natural charisma, certainly an on-screen charisma, to shed that. Dial it back. Because the thing is this. Uh, George Clooney, a couple years before this, had won an Oscar for supporting actor for Syriana, for which he, I would say famously, famously, except nobody remembers Syriana, but at the time, famously, he'd put on like 20 pounds of fat. Hmm. He'd grown a big beard, which oh, he had yeah, never really right. done, and he shaved his hairline back a little bit. Hmm. And so that seemed to help him drop some of his charisma a little bit. In this, he looks like George Clooney. Yeah. And so for so he didn't have those physical things to rely on. He just had to do it by just through understanding the character. Mm-hmm. And he does. Yeah. It really and I and I remember a lot of people even after Syriana, even after winning that Oscar, a lot of people when they saw Michael Clayton they said he's doing something here that we haven't seen before and that we didn't even think he was capable of. Hmm. And he's done it again. Uh, he's done it since then with the descendants. Um, but then again, you go back to the oceans movies or you go back to even up in the air and you see, well, he didn't lose it as a person. He can still summon this up if he needs to, but he's not interested so much anymore. Now he wants to play characters that, maybe again used to be this but just can't muster it up anymore right um and then uh i did we already i think we already talked about tilda swinton who just does such a great job of just i don't like to use the term deer in the headlights because everybody says it all the time um it's a term that is overused but there are times when she just has that deer in the head headlights look most Um, uh prominently in the the last scene yeah where he presents her with the, uh, the the sheet that her boss had signed yeah. that incriminates everybody and everyone's going to jail now. So she's standing there basically trying to uh, negotiate with him to not uh, make this thing go public. Yeah. And the deer in the headlights is mixed with who she is. I mean, her acting ability at that point is not just deer in the headlights and you see, and she does that well. It's yeah. more like there's this, there's this sort of like chin trembling fear mm-hmm. that goes along with it and and a like a a realization she's standing there and she's got to go back into the the meeting now yeah and she also has to put out this fire in the lobby now yeah <laughs> and she has no way to do both at the same time and she has she's she's like lost all of her power yeah in that scene and you see it on her face and she's trying to hide it behind during the headlights yeah but it it's, comes out yeah it's a realization yeah and it's there's a line in in the insider that i'm a big fan of uh, that al pacino delivers i kept thinking about that movie while i was watching this movie. they are very similar in a lot of ways oh, in a good um, way oh yeah absolutely um but al pacino has a line in there that i like a lot because any and primarily because he delivers it really well in which um this one character it's getting towards the end and it's looking like Russell Crowe's testimony is not going to be, or his interview is not going to be put out there and stuff. And uh, a lawyer is saying like, hey, I'm, uh, he's like, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that his testimony, his interview would be really instrumental in this court case. And then Al Pacino says, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I'm about out of moves. <laughs> and there's something about that. Mm. I'm about out of moves. That's a very, that's a hard thing to say that like, because I think all of us, at some point, we probably have three moves in any given situation. We have our go-tos, and then we have something we don't try very often, but we could. 
and to literally feel like I mean it, it's it's the stuff of horror movies. There's only so much you can do mm-hmm. when a big shark is bearing down on you. You know, like for uh, to mention something else uh, that's oddly enough similar to The Insider to a certain extent thematically. Um, Jaws. Uh, Brody's got one move left at the end. He's going to get up on that mast. He's about two feet above the water. The shark's coming right for him. He's going to try and hit this tank. If this doesn't work, he's out. He's out of moves. And so the desperation comes through. And so Karen has a lot of moves. Her last resort is, although maybe it's not her last resort all the time, um, is, okay, there's only so much we can do. Let's kill this person. Right. And when she no longer has that, and there and there at the end, she it's this it's this realization of I am out of moves. I strive for control, and I usually have it. Now I have no control at all over my circumstances, and I am in trouble now. And there's nothing I can do. And it's just pure. It's deer in the headlights, but like you said, it's shock. But there's emotion coming through. Mm-hmm. And it just looks like she's going to break down, but she won't let herself. No. If she had broken down, that almost would have given us some catharsis and it wouldn't have been right for her character. Um, because she, at the very least, the one thing she can, con- she can try to control is her own reaction. Right. And it's just, man, what a wonderful And she's still going to be outraged. And we, we don't get to see this, but yeah. when, when he, uh, Clayton's walking toward this, the camera and the camera's kind of pulling back and you see all the FBI guys kind of race yeah. toward them to arrest them. Um, we don't get to see her reaction necessarily, but you know it would probably be outraged and like, what did I do? Yeah. It wouldn't be like, you know, like dropping to your knees with your hands toward heaven, like, yeah. oh no, I'm, I've been found out. It's more like, yeah, that character would not break down, yeah. I don't think. Yeah, it's those three performances are obviously what the film is, is centered around. But I do want to also bring up the late, great Sidney Pollock. Wow. True. Who is a director that I enjoyed. But I, there's not. I feel like there's not a lot of instances in which a director. There, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of uh, actor directors, people who started as actors, or they direct stuff that they're in, or whatever. But there's not a lot of people who kind of started as directors and then occasionally act, hmm. and they're great. John Huston is one, hmm. and Sidney Pollock when he shows up. And maybe he comes from, maybe he has an acting background as well, but I know him first and foremost as a director. But when he shows up in Husbands and Wives or Eyes Wide Shut, Eyes Wide Shut or he was in a civil action, and he always kind of plays the same guy. I mean, he's always yeah. wearing a suit. Um, Tootsie? Tootsie, oh, yeah. But admittedly, he also did direct that one. Oh, that's true. Um, I forgot. But, uh, and wonderfully so. But he just... Oh, and he's in a movie called Changing Lanes, and I think he's great oh, in that's that. right. And he just, he has a very matter-of-fact quality to how he acts mm-hmm. that works very well for guys who've sort of made peace with where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are no, but he's not unsympathetic either. Um, he is just not even a cynical guy. I think he would view himself as a realist. And he is Michael's boss, but he's also a guy who kind of believes in him. And he has, he's emotionally connected with, uh, 
Tom Wilkinson and George Clooney, like he, he has friends and in his own mind, he's able to get through life making the decisions that he's made and he's fine with it. And he is a, he's like a villain, but not, he's not that much of an active villain, at least not in this story. And I don't know. There's a lot of weight. Like he, there's, there's temptation when you play this character to play him as sinister or as like, you know, Mephistopheles or something like right. that perpetually offering. And there is a scene where he offers George Clooney money, but he doesn't play like, here's money. I'm purchasing your soul. It's nothing like that. Well, it was money that, uh, that Clooney had already asked for. Yeah. So it wasn't even like of him. It wasn't like a, an offer from Satan. It was more yeah. like, okay, we'll give you what you want and, but just to keep like, you in place. Yeah. But like even, but then there's even more temptation to be like, all right, here's your money that you wanted to so like to yeah. play it. Like I've got, I hold all the cards instead. He just goes here to like, there's almost exasperation. Exactly. Just, here, here's 80,000. We're calling it a bonus and that's it. <laughs> and I love it. I think he's, I think he's great. And I was, I was actually quite sad when he died. He died fairly yeah. young. Yeah. Um, I think he was probably in his sixties, but that's still, still young. young. Um, still working. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and all, all the performances are very good. Obviously there's the, the, the big three, but I always like to single out Sidney Pollack because he is a, he, he's a surprisingly dependable actor, yeah, which you don't expect from somebody. One thing I like about, uh, about his character is actually, another guy that's always hanging around with him. It's like guy Barry. It's sort of like his assistant or I think is played by Michael O'Keefe. That's right. That's right. And himself an Oscar nominee for the great Santini. Oh, wow. I don't know why. Obscure theater. Um, no, but I I think the Barry character is there. Uh, obviously there's a buffer between anyone and Sidney Pollack, but also to further, uh, lower, uh, Clooney, his character, because he has to kind of go through, Barry, Barry, who he kind of is snide toward anyway. I mean, he yeah. sees him as kind of a, a hanger on, um, somebody doesn't have, doesn't have to necessarily obey, but still does because he's the bag man yeah. and he's the assistant to Sidney Pollack. So it puts him in a position of, of even lower, uh, it's like lower on the totem pole. Even, I mean, it just, it's a, like a physical person you could look at and go, Oh, even that guy gets to push Clooney around. Yeah. Um, and I love that. Yeah, and just it's one thing when it's Sidney Pollack who doesn't even really push him around because he de- seems to have genuine affection for Michael, but he also is his boss and does have the last word. Whereas Barry is just a he's just a toady. Like he's not even the boss. He's the he's Smithers. Yeah, exactly. It's always weird when you watch The Simpsons. You see Smithers bossing someone around, and you think, yeah. "What?" Yeah. At one point, uh, Barry says to him uh, regarding. Uh, Wilkinson's character he says, "You better saddle up and take care of that guy." And it cuts to Clooney and goes, "Saddle up, like that." <laughs> and uh, it's like he can be snide to the guy, but he still can't act. He has no power compared to that guy. Yeah, and I just love that that they're the Gilroy and Al are. Uh, they just find all these different ways to make Clooney as lowly, yeah, as possible. He's got a gambling problem and he can't kick, but he's lying about it. He's I haven't seen a card table in ten years, you know that kind of thing. But he's yeah. we just saw him there. Yeah. Um, so he's like a slave to his addictions. He's a slave to Barry. Yeah. <laughs> he's a sad, sad guy. Yeah, he really is. And there's a, and he even has, we even see that he's had ambitions in the past, like mm-hmm. own a restaurant that didn't go well. And well, that's his brother's fault. It's his brother's fault. Yes. But I don't know. But even that 
makes him seem particularly powerless. Well, yeah, he couldn't stop this either. There's a, a wonderful scene that I, I, I watched again. I almost said rewound again. Um, that I watched again uh, directly after I saw it the first time. I, I was just so fascinated by it. It's when Clooney goes to ask for the $75,000. He says eighty. <laughs> Presumably, so he got five thousand dollars to gamble with. Right, um, but he asked for eighty grand, and uh, he says, "I've been, you know, I've been doing this for so long, and I, you know, I'm a good guy. Don't, you, don't you? I just need help. I need, I need a, an out here. Can you help me? I've been trying to get a meeting with you for two weeks on this, and the whole scene. It's wonderful to watch because uh, uh, Pollock." Pollock's character is like, he's the boss, and he's smarter than Clooney. Mm-hmm. And so he turns the entire thing around to Clooney, like, feeling almost guilty for having asked for the money. He's yeah. frustrated that he's not getting it, but uh, but Pollock kind of walks out of the room eventually after kind of dressing him down a little bit in a friendly way, because he does say, no, you, you're, you're, the, you're the best uh, fixer that we could have possibly had. That This is sort of your niche. Mm-hmm. That's what he says. He says... You have what so many people want in life, they, a niche. Yeah. You found a niche. <laughs> As if this is like uh, enough to, to you know, make Clooney go, oh, yeah, you're right. You're totally right. I love my life. Well, it's, it's – and that, that, this goes to the writing. It's, it's putting somebody in their place in the form of encouragement. Yeah, absolutely. Backhanded compliment. Yeah. 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 He says, and he even says uh, – uh, Clooney says, yeah, but I was, I was such a great lawyer – and he said, and he says, let me give you some advice, Clooney. You know, leave that in the past because it does seem strange that he called him Clooney in the scene. In the, in the movie, he's like, Very can strange. we do that again? Uh, it's not Clooney in the movie. Um, he says, yeah, but you know, I've seen so many guys who, you know, they they were so great in the past and they try it again and they're not as good as they used to be. Don't mm-hmm. let that happen to you. It's like advice masking. I'm keeping you exactly where I want you, yeah. and I know how to do that. And I'm walking out of the room right now. I'm not giving you your money. Yeah. It's just it's just a wonderful scene. Yeah, it's man. Here's the thing: you've seen it more recently than I mm-hmm. have. I lent you my copy, so I wasn't able to to watch it before this. And frankly, I've seen it enough times that I have a pretty good memory for Clearly. it. Clearly, but all I want to do is uh, it's a shame I have so much work to do today. All I want to do again. is watch this again. Yeah, it's only two hours. I know, but that's two hours of work. Put it in the background. Uh, I could do that. It is certainly a film that you could listen to pretty easily. Um, but I do want to watch it because it is, it does look good as well. It's again, there is a slickness to it that it I, holds that up. I enjoy. Um, okay. We do need to move on, um, pretty quick. Um, actually, um, do you mind if I interrupt? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, there's just one aspect of the movie I was thinking about. Last night I was going to sleep after watching it, and then this morning when I kind of fast forwarded through it again, one of the, I think one of the big reasons why I'm pulled into the movie, and it goes along with some of the stuff we've already said, that he's he's kind of kept in his place, um, and he's in a job that he's good at, but that he doesn't necessarily love, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that only I can relate to that. I think uh, tons of people can relate to that, but that's mm-hmm. why I felt for this guy as much as I did. Uh, and the movie continually puts him in his place as people are putting him in his place. There, there's yeah. the one, what, what was it? Let me grab my notes. But Oh, at the very beginning, right, when he says, uh, I'm not a miracle worker, I'm a janitor. And this describes his self-loathing. It describes 
where he feels like he's been kept for as long as he has been kept. And then at one point, let me see where this was. Uh, yeah, that's right. Later in the, uh, in the alley, when he says, I'm not the enemy, and he says, then who are you? Mm-hmm. He's constantly being asked or told or telling himself yeah. who he is and where he is in life. And that scene, I have to go back to it again, the scene where he goes uh, to Pollock and asks for the money yeah. in, in the office. And he says, um, I, of course I'm good at this job, but I, I'm good at other things too. Won't, he, says, he says, you're my meal ticket. And uh, if you're gone, then it's just going to be me and Barry left trying to, and I'm trying to explain to people what I do. Yeah. You know what I do. I know what I do, but no one else knows what I do. That's the nature of what I do. And I feel that way all the time at my current job. I just, this sort of ambivalence about where I am, knowing that I'm good at it, but it's not who I could be in terms of potential or creative expression or any of those kind of things. And I'm, I'm watching Clooney crumble in this movie yeah. under the weight of where he knows he could be. If yeah. only he had something, whatever that is, to get out of it. Yeah. And the restaurant, God bless him, was his gamble. And the reason he's had, having to go ask for money in the first place is because that went south because of yeah. his brother. But he tries and he fails. But And this is kind of where life, other characters, and his own voice inside his head is keeping him. And I, I'm just, I'm, I don't have any grand statement on that. I just, that, that's something about the movie that I think got right and makes you care about Clooney. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I said, just uh, another shade of the brilliance of this movie. Yeah, and that is actually um, <clears throat> where uh, what I'll use to take us into our companion film, which is uh, 1982, 1982 film The Verdict, directed the by Verdict. Sidney Lumet. Great movie. Great director. Great um, actor. Written by a great, act- by great da- writer. By David Mamet. Yes. Based How could on, it go wrong? Based on the novel by Barry Reed. Now, uh, The Verdict is a film... That is very similar to Michael Clayton. When it's, I, it's remarkable how close they are. Yeah. When I parallel. thought of when I thought of uh, um, when I thought of it as the companion film, because sometimes what I'll I'll think of the companion film and I'll think, okay, is this the best one? Let me let me think of a few other options and we'll we'll see where we are. This one, when I hit, I was like, well, this is obviously <laughs> what what else are we going to do? Um, yeah. So this is a story of uh, of uh, a civil trial in which a hospital has uh, uh, caused a, a woman to go into a coma. And uh, her lawyer is played by... Her lawyer is a guy named Frank Galvin, who's a mm-hmm. drunk, and he used to be great, but now he's not. Now he's just kind of an ambulance chaser. He's played by uh, Paul Newman. And it's the story of him, you know, trying this case as best he can, which incidentally is not that good. Not at all. Um, he makes a lot of mistakes. But he starts to get more invested in this case specifically. And uh, whereas he used to see it as uh, a source of just money, he now actually believes in what he is doing. And uh, and is so desperate to win the case. Not uh, Certainly he'll get money for it. But um, not just for that reason, but because with it he will get a certain degree of redemption because once again not only is he a pretty good lawyer but he also is a principled person um so you know it's 
you have somebody who used to be great now he's just kind of greatly diminished played by a charismatic movie star who strips himself of that yeah uh you deal with like corporate corruption and stuff like that so there there are a lot of similarities but ultimately it's somebody uh desperate for redemption um and and a return to maybe what they used to be or perhaps what they were always meant to be and um so we won't dwell too much on this film but uh but I love it. I'm a big fan of Sidney Lumet. Mm-hmm. I like the way he shoots the film. I, he has a very specific uh, color palette in mind, which I like a lot. Um, I think it is written beautifully. David Mamet is a, can be a very self-conscious writer sometimes. But this came right around the time of American Buffalo and Glengarry Glen Ross, like the plays. And so he was like in his prime Hmm. Uh, at that at that time writing not in the mammoth speak but really trying to write how people talk right and for my money you don't get better than jack warden delivering david mammoth dialogue he is Hmm. somehow when i think of actors that can do a certain type of dialogue well jack warden doing david mammoth like think about it if he was in glengarry glen ross Oh, that would be great. He could play any number of characters, but can you imagine him playing the Dave Moss, the Ed Harris character? He'd be wonderful. Yes, he would. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so it's just a, it's just solid uh, on every front, and the acting front as well. Paul Newman, it's I think it's one of his best performances. Uh, I know Sidney Lumet, uh, Sidney Lumet considered it his best. Hmm. Um, but Jack Warden is an actor that I've always liked. I've always found him to be very dependable. In Twelve Angry Men. He's also in 12 Angry Men, yes. By Sidney Lumet. And uh, Charlotte Rampling is also in the film. She plays sort of the the love in, the treacherous love interest. Spoilers. Um, but uh, And she's really good. She's what she needs to be. The character maybe could be a bit more developed, but you get a good sense of who she is and why she does Honestly, she does. if you don't mind me uh, buttoning in. Sure. Are we at, you know, there's obviously the... the running theme is eth- the eth- ethnic uh, uh, eth- what's the word ethic ethically yeah the, ethnically that's not a, eth- they're not, a different film they're not ethnically challenged they're ethically challenged characters um in the middle of something that they as a single human being cannot conquer there's no mm-hmm. way they can how will they do that in this movie um so we we, we think about like the ethics the, the challenge of these people's you know the moral framework with which they make inside of which they make their decisions and whatnot you know um charlotte rampling's character is in some ways to me in that movie the more ethically challenged because she's i don't i don't think we ever get or at least i never understood why she start is it okay to spoil yeah sure um, it's a how like a thirty-two year old movie. Something it like is thirty-two. It's 34. same year I was born. Um, thirty-two years old. Uh, you know she she's um, I forgot what I was going to say. Help me. Well, she's, oh, she's more ethically challenged. Yeah, yeah. Because she, uh, I don't understand like exactly where she, why she decided that she was going to uh, start working for the bad, the quote unquote yeah. bad guys, the opposition. But she did, and uh, she starts learning the humanity of Frank Galvin as she's infiltrating his life and trying to get secrets from him about the other side and all that kind of thing. Um, 
and what is she going to do? She is, you talk about, you know, uh, Tilda Swinton's character in, uh, in the other movie, she's a, a woman, as you said, a woman in a man's world having to prove herself. I mean, she is, she is, uh, definitely more that yeah in this case because it's a movie of its more of its time it's like 82 and it's uh um i don't know i keep th- i think about the i'm sorry i'm kind of shotgunning this but uh, i think about the moment when he finds out yeah or after he finds out and he sees her in the bar or somewhere he's somewhere where she is and there's a bunch of other men mm-hmm. and uh there's just a, a look between them and then he walks over and slaps her. Yeah. And so now she's bleeding from her mouth. And there are other guys like trying to help her up and stuff. And she says, uh, leave him alone. In other words, don't look at him and look like you're going to beat him up because he hit me. Yeah. Um, leave him alone. Almost as if and her expression, her body language, and that line say to me as the viewer, I deserve this. Yeah. Um, and that was so sad to me. Um, not from a feminist point of view like oh it's so sad that she thinks for herself that way but just that her character recognizes how treacherous she was yeah to such a degree that she feels like she deserves to be slapped down onto the ground by a man yeah and just really really sad and and for her to be okay with the the retribution for her act from the man that she now loves um and knowing that that would probably happen is her ethic ethically challenged moment. I can't seem to say that. I have a like, vocabulary it challenge. That, it seems odd that uh, it feels like it'd be harder to say ethnic. Ethnically? Ethic. Ethically. Ethics. She's challenged ethically. <laughs> oh, boy. I don't um, really know. But uh, I, I'll have well, to say that she's... And I there's think, a scene with her and James Mason where he actually spells out what yes. her story is, which is she used to be a lawyer, then she got married... Oh yeah. And then her marriage ended and now she wants to come back and practice the law. So this is an in probably with James Mason's law firm, but like, think about, think about that. And that speaks to her being a woman, certainly of the time that she probably gave up her career to get married and that didn't work out. And so now, however many years later, she has to start all over again. Yeah. Like how, I mean, that's a very, it's a very relatable and a very sympathetic story. That's a very sad thing. Like giving something, uh, giving something you love and are good at up for love, for love of another person. And then that doesn't work out. So yeah. now I'm alone. So that might explain some of her self-hatred from a romantic standpoint. And I have to start, start all over with my profession. And it's just, yeah, as much as that's the thing. Frank Galvin is a character who, who hates himself because he's just kind of he's just kind of sleazy and he's not what he used to be. Yeah. She is actively making decisions that hurts people that she loves because she's trying to make up for lost time. She's trying to correct mistakes that she's made in the past. She's making all new ones, but mm-hmm. she's being you know what? Here's the thing. I'm I'm inclined to say she's being selfish, but I don't want to say that because I sympathize with her so much. Right. But that is what she's being. And so, um, well, everyone in this movie is selfishly motivated. Oh yeah. yeah. Even, even the end product, uh, end result of all of this is that they get the, like this huge, yeah. you know, money output from the court, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then, and, and Jack Warden himself, like 
breathes a huge sigh of relief and like looks up into the heavens like thank god yeah you know and it, it kind of sullies the end a little bit because it should be about the principle but Ultimately, yeah. it kind of is still just about the money. Yeah. Or, uh, and very the, money, much so. the money, admittedly, is used uh, as a way of this is, you know, this is how, especially like in civil court, money is how justice is meted out. So right. if this hospital is made to pay more than was even originally asked for. If the jury awards it more, then the jury is saying, this hospital is so wrong. Yeah. And so it is, it's what it, it's what it communicates, yes. But it is also money, and money spends pretty well. Right. And so, um, yeah, so there is that element to it as well. And, and I do, I remember that scene with, with Jack Warden when he hears about it, and it could be, because for him, I mean, certainly I think he, feels a certain degree of conviction that that frank does but i think more than anything he just wants to win the case and get back to how things used to be and this will very much allow him to do that yeah and so yeah there's just so nobody nobody's completely clean people have motives and good for them uh that may be noble but it's still nobody's completely clean and uh yeah, it's just a it's a film that I absolutely love, and even though we kind of spoiled it, uh, if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. Yeah. You'll see some wonderful acting. I haven't even mentioned James Mason, who it's. <laughs> I haven't seen a whole lot of James Mason in my life. I feel bad about that, but he's marvelous in it. He plays the opposing attorney, which is always one of my favorite types of characters, um, and he plays him in a very, you know, the James Mason is a British character actor from a different era of acting. Mm-hmm. He could have overplayed this, but he doesn't. He really doesn't. He he's sort of the Sidney Pollack of this movie in that respect. Oh, very. He kind of is. Yeah. Cause he's actually very okay with the stuff that he does. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he's just, um, I believe, uh, he's referred to by Jack Warden's character as the Prince of darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, the Prince of darkness. Yeah. And so, uh, but that's the thing. The character is very comfortable with where he is, what he yeah. does. And he's just, and it's such an, it's a surprisingly soft spoken performance, mm-hmm. um, which I like, which is, incidentally is just kind of something about James Mason that I always liked is that he always took characters that you could overplay and just play them surprisingly quietly. I, uh, I watched, uh, it was like a 10 minute behind the scenes kind of thing made at the time the film was made. Yeah. Um, and Mason says about his character, he says, you know what? I bet this guy, I think this guy is a really nice, he's a good family man. Mm-hmm. He, he's liked by people that he knows and he, he loves people he knows. And, but when he's in the courtroom, he, he doesn't always do, uh, what is, uh, he, he often goes against the rules, mm-hmm. the established rules of decorum in order to win. And I like that. It's almost like a, like, character actors who play bad guys who say you know what he's a human first and foremost who does evil things he's not an evil man and i like that approach to this character because you do want to see this guy's legs come out cut out from under him yeah mason's character i mean because he is so just obnoxiously uh powerful Mm -hmm. and uh in charge and uh so yeah yeah and it's and that idea of, well, he's probably a really nice guy who has a family. Well, there's your motivation right there of, well, the more I win, the more I'm able to take care of my family and be sure. a good person elsewhere. I mean, he even talks about, as he's talking uh, 
to um, Charlotte Rampling, he lists off uh, the philosophy of his law firm, which is win. And he says, this is how we, you know, this is what pays for this office. It's what pays for the scotch in our glass. It was, it's what pays for the pro bono work we do for the poor. I'm sure they are very happy to do that work for the poor, but you also get the impression that maybe they're doing that to kind of make themselves feel a little of bit course. better. Yeah. But that's the thing when you, when you're doing something like that, when you're using, you know, Oh, I'm doing work for the poor. Oh, I'm providing for my family. You can use something that is altruistic and good. You can use that as an excuse to do bad things. Of course. And I think that is, that is where that character has just arrived. by the means. Yeah. It's a, it's a great character. I love the yeah. way he's written and I love the way uh, he's played. One thing I love about the, uh, the, is the end of the movie is, is how we've been so super focused on Paul Newman's character and his, his own personal redemption mm-hmm. and how at the beginning of the movie, he is like the lowest, he's an ambulance chaser and he's like hanging out at funerals to give people their card, his yeah. card. And at the end you want, by then, you want him to triumph so much, and then when those, the, when the jury comes back in, and, and everyone's been against him. Every single character, Jack Warden, who gave him the case to begin with, said, just settle, man. Just settle. Don't go to yeah. court. And the judge is against him because he's Played friends wonderfully with by Miles, Milo, Milo O'Shea. Milo O'Shea. Yeah. Um, as opposed to Miles O'Keefe, the other, other movie. No, Michael was, O'Keefe. Michael O'Keefe. Yeah. Um, but at, at the end of the movie, though everything is against him, classic Hollywood style, yeah. everything is against him, the jury comes back, they sit down, and they say, we're going to give you more than, blah, 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 so you assume like in the millions of dollars. Yeah. And there's not, there, there is this the kind of the, uh, um, the montage of relief, mm-hmm. you know, you, and, and frustration on the other t- team's side. Yeah. But there's never a sense of, I told you so from Paul Newman's character. Yeah. There's never the sense from the movie, I told you so. It's it's really played for just the relief of the moment. Mm-hmm. And I like that. And it didn't really occur to me until we were talking about it that that, that moment didn't, doesn't exist. You kind of, in a way, you want like uh, uh, Newman to kind of look over at Warden and go, like, didn't I, even with a gesture or something, like, yeah. we did it, didn't we? And I said we, we would do it. Yeah. Or I did it, despite you. Something like that. It could even be shaded so it's not, like, pronounced, but it's not there at all. Well, I think some I of like that, that has to do with the fact that his case is terrible. Like, his, I mean, uh, James Mason's character's name is Ken Cannon. Ken Cannon just destroys all of Frank Galvin's witnesses. All the way down. Yep. So, if you're going just by evidence, and they they even say this, the opposition says it. Um, just by evidence and what's presented in the courtroom, if you were to look at it unemotionally, oh, Galvin loses. <laughs> and I think he knows that. Hmm. I think he knows that he doesn't have a whole lot of, a, he doesn't have a great case. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's the appeal that he makes to the, the jury. He says, today you're the law. Whatever yeah. you think, whatever you feel, go with that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a very directly emotional appeal. Um, one that from a legal standpoint, I'm not super thrilled with, but, um, but yeah, like he has so much writing on this and I think he knows that like, this is beyond my control. I've done everything I can do. And even that's really not good enough. This is in the hands of other people. I have to try to have faith in other people and yeah. it, and it pays off. Yeah. But what I like 
is that the film ends facing him with a question, which is, and it's one that as a Christian, it resonates with me quite a bit. And it's the idea of, you know, redemption and how that can hopefully give way to forgiveness of others because it ends with he's, he's back home and we see Charlotte Rampling who he's, he wants nothing to do with because she was informing femme fatale. What was that? Femme fatale. She's sure she's kind of a femme (laughs) fatale. Um, and so, uh, so she calls him and he see, and I think he knows it. I think he knows that it's probably her. Um, or he could just be sitting and letting the phone ring. You're not, no matter who it is, who knows, but the fact, but we know it's her. And so I think, uh, we might project that onto him as well, but, and at the very least it just emphasizes, well, what are they going to do? Whether he knows it's her on the phone or not, what are they going to do now? Is he going to forgive her? Now that he's so principled and now that he's trying to do the right thing, is he going to be so self-righteous that he can't see past the mistakes she's made? And it's, and the movie doesn't give you an answer. It's just left. I want an answer. What was that? I was disappointed by the ending. Well, I like it because it's, it almost like takes it to you not to say like, well, what do you think? As opposed to it's, well, how, how often in your life, have you done the right thing and felt really good about yourself, but you won't extend it because life has given you another chance or you could say mm-hmm. God has given you another chance, but you won't extend that to other people. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it is biblical. The idea of, Oh shoot, which, which parable is that? Like the man who's forgiven very, uh, given, yes. forgiven a lot, but he won't forgive somebody a little, right. you know? Um, and so, but don't I, we want it? I, I, w- I would think that, I mean, there's the moment when he walks in, we described earlier, and he slaps her. Mm-hmm. Um, Aubrey was doing something else, but I stopped it and I said, oh, I, I always hate that he does that. Um, but it, it does illustrate his inability, much like the parable, it, it demonstrates his inability to forgive as he was forgiven by life. Well, um, I mean, so in, that the, what, in the moment, he's that's the thing. For, okay, whenever we are wronged, we do have a first instinct, and I think when it comes to if that first instinct is violence or cruelty, I think all right, maybe we should curb that, which he doesn't. But I at least understand it a little bit because it just hit him, mm-hmm. and then he hit her. Um, but at the end, all right, he has had time to settle, and things has, have gone his way. And the fact that it's still ambiguous after that is to me very powerful. Forgiveness comes, I think, I think you're able to tell if you've actually forgiven somebody over time, you know, like you could do, you could say something terrible to me right now and I could say, I forgive you. But in three days, if it still hurts and if I find myself thinking about it a lot and dwelling on it, if one week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, if I never have you on this show again, because, well, I did say that one thing to me, like time is how you, I feel like time is how you're able to determine whether or not you've actually forgiven somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, the initial response 
I feel like, yes, we have control over it, but I feel like where, where we really find who we are as far as forgiving other people is when, when we've got some distance on it. So what you're saying is there should have been a verdict too, set 10 years later. That's the one. Okay. But then if the, if the question is, if the sequel is, if the purpose of the, the, this non-existent sequel is just to answer, did they get together? I feel like it'd be a very boring film. Maybe. Maybe they're still, <laughs> the phone's still ringing when the film, when the film <laughs> Ten starts. Years later. He's sitting there, he's got a long beard. Um, but, uh, and then cut to credits. Yeah. That's it's verdict like, well, too. I guess he, I guess not. Sticking to his guns. But, uh, so, all right. So what have we been, what have we been talking about here from a, for me, from a thematic standpoint, uh, there's a lot going on with Michael Clayton and the verdict. And we've already used words like redemption um, and that sort of thing. But what I want to talk about is a lot of this stuff rolled into one sort of, the, almost into a narrative um, for our own lives. So, I mean, everybody has done bad things. Everybody has made mistakes. Some of them maybe fairly innocuous. Some of them maybe huge. Who knows? Um, and we will have moments of regret and that might even translate to genuine self-hatred. And that is a big theme of these movies. I think Michael Clayton, he hates himself. Frank Galvin hates himself. Charlotte, uh, Charlotte Rampling. What's her character's name? Laura, Laura Fisher. She hates herself. Um, I think it's, I think you could even make an argument that Tilda Swinton doesn't really like herself either. Absolutely. In some way, shape or form. She may not just, she may just not like her own weakness, but whatever. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of self-loathing in these characters. Um, and as I was thinking about these movies and looking up Bible verses and stuff like that, um, that is where I where I started is this idea of self hatred, partially because that's a thing I deal with a lot. Um, as listeners of this show are probably very well aware, um, but uh, so I want to. I'm just going to kind of plow through some some quotes from the movies and some Bible verses. I may throw one to you from time to time, so have your notes ready. Get those off the floor. Um, all right. First one, as we said already, Michael Clayton says, I'm not a miracle worker, I'm a janitor. If somebody classifies, with all due respect to any janitors who might be listening, I have nothing against janitors. I don't think they're lesser people or anything like that. But it is, at the very least, unglamorous work. Um, so if somebody classifies himself as a janitor, especially if he is not actually a janitor, uh, that is, he's putting himself down. Um and also, I know this is a splitting hairs, maybe, but he's not saying I do janitorial work, which admittedly no one would ever put it that way. He says, I am a janitor. It's a function of he's saying this as a function of his identity. You said it yourself that like he's constantly either other characters are saying it. He's saying it himself. Constant classification of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, OK. Real quick, here's a couple of couple of fast verses just about having integrity and just being 
you know, uh, the, the tagline for Michael Clayton is the truth can be adjusted. And it's just, we're dealing with characters in both films that use words as a smokescreen to hide the truth. And they say one thing, but they mean another and, and that sort of thing. And so here's just a couple of quick verses. Proverbs ten nine, whoever walks with integrity, sorry, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out as does happen in a couple of these, uh, in a couple instances, Matthew five thirty seven. all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Uh, I like that one. That's, and that's, uh, there's another verse that I, I, um, I can't call to mind right now, but like, let your, let your yes be yes. And your no be no, like just speak very truthfully and speak plainly. Don't overcomplicate things, hmm. uh, with qualifiers and stuff like that. And that, and, Obviously, this is something that Michael doesn't do. He is a fixer. He comes in and he fixes the situation, fixes bad situations to make them at least appear good, uh, at least in the in the eyes of the law. So, so he, and he knows this, and he hates himself for it. And so, this is a line from the end of the film. Uh, he says, I'm not the guy you kill. I'm the guy you buy. Are you so blind that you don't even see what I am? And I like that phrase, what I am. Like, that's a very, yeah, that's a very powerful statement. I sold out Arthur for 80 grand. grand. I'm your easiest problem and you're going to kill me. Like, he's literally talking about how shallow he, when you say I'm an easy problem, all you got to do is give me money and I'm good. Mm -hmm. I mean, just don't you see what I am? It's very, I mean, there, the, like it, it's dripping with self-loathing. Yeah. What's um, what's odd about that moment though in the movie is that he's saying it in, in a moment of triumph because he's yeah. doing the right thing while he says it. Yeah. So it's like uh, he's doing the right thing yet he's still completely disabled yeah. by his own self-loathing. Well, and it's it is a moment of realization and it is a moment of triumph. He's not yet to the point where he can say, "Don't you see what I was?" Mm -hmm. He can't say that. Because he's not that yet. He's in the process of, of that. But he can't say it yet. Which makes it, you know, I mean, in Christian terms, I've, man, I wish I remember who said this. Because I quote, I, I feel like I bring it up a lot. Maybe not on the show, but just in life. Uh, people talking about, someone said that their image of heaven was a bunch of people talking about their sins. But not merely saying, hey, this is a thing I did, but more like trumping it, trumpeting it and saying, this is what I did and I was still forgiven. Hmm. This is who I am, or rather, this is who I was and I was still forgiven. I was still loved. I'm still here, hmm. even though these things, like it's pointed out as a fact, there's no shame attached. There's no regret. It's just a fact of this is who I was, and yet I am still here. And it, that in itself is a testament and a celebration to the grace of God and the and the redemptive power of God. And so, um, so yeah, it is. It's it's very interesting because there is self loathing and a realization and just an acknowledgement of fact in this statement. Um, but it's but it's yes, it's still remarkably powerful. So okay couple of other things. Colossians 3.23. 
I think I'll probably throw some of these uh, to you uh, towards the end there, Robert. That's fine. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. That idea of as working for the Lord. Now, in this case, I mean, it can be anything, whatever you do. It doesn't have to be just be professional. But I think it's fair to say that if if you're not doing your job with integrity and with honesty and that sort of thing, you're probably not doing it as for the Lord. I think it'd be funny if some character walked up to Michael Clayton and quoted this verse to him <laughs> as a bag man for a, an evil law firm. Yeah. And he's, and in that moment I could see him saying something to the effect of, don't you realize what I am? What I, I am. I feel like we are, you're several steps beyond me at the moment. Um, so, okay. Uh, Titus two, seven and eight. Sorry, two verses, seven and eight, not the entire chapter of two, seven and eight. Um, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. That would be Um, awesome. What was that? That would be awesome. It would be awesome. I don't know if it's... I don't know. I, sometimes I look at that and I, I don't necessarily feel discouraged, but I look at that and I say, yeah, that, that would be awesome. That sounds great. I don't think I can do it. That uh, seems hopelessly impossible for me. Indeed. But, uh, but it is still what we are. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed yeah. because they have nothing bad to say about us. Wow. What a place to be. I know. It sounds, it sounds great. Um, Someday. But it's, it speaks to like lead, <clears throat> trying to lead a, a blameless life, yeah. you know, and that can mean any number of things. I mean, it's, it's the idea of like, uh, you know, the plank and the speck, you know, the idea of trying to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, right. While you still have a plank in your own, it's like dealing with your own problems so that you may better maybe help other people deal with theirs and come from a place of non judgment at all. And in that sense, you are blameless. No one can, point at you and say, ah, yes, but what about your own right. plank? That kind of thing. So, um, okay. I do love this, ex- this exchange. It's from Michael Clayton. Michael is talking about Tom Wilkinson's character and he's talking to, uh, Sidney Pollock's character. He says, what if he wasn't crazy? What if he was right? And Marty, uh, of course his name would be Marty. He's uh Sidney Pollock's character. He says, right about what? We're on the wrong side. And then Michael says, wrong side, wrong way, anything, all of it. Wrong way. I love that. We're on the wrong way. We're on the Mm. wrong path. We're going the wrong way. Anything, all of it. Yeah, all of it. Nothing we do or say is right at this point. Yeah. What he's saying. Yeah. Any step, if we are taking any step forward, we are going further down the wrong path. (laughs) Only if we go backward can we hope to get on the right path. Yeesh. Um, okay, so here's uh, a long quote from uh, the character Frank Galvin in uh, The Verdict, and it's when he starts to change. And so I'm trying to lay all these out in a narrative format so that we see how we're supposed to react, how we're supposed to act in the first place. Um, and if we're And if we're not, you know, sort of what happens if we if we are aware that we're not living the way we're supposed to be living and the the frustration and the self-hatred that can come of that so 
but there comes a moment when it's time to change and we start to feel convicted about that. So this is from the verdict that poor girl put her trust into the hands of two men who, who took her life. She's in a coma. Her life is gone. She has no home, no family. She's tied to a machine. She has no friends and the people who should care for her, her doctors and you and me have been bought off to look the other way. We've been paid to look the other way. I came here to take your money. I brought snapshots to show you so I could get your money. I can't do it. I can't take it. Because if I take the money, I'm lost. I'll just be a rich ambulance chaser. I can't do it. I can't take it. It's a really wonderful moment. It's a great, great, great performance. And he's holding a check for $210,000 in his hand that he could yeah, take. That he could take. And that means he would get 70 of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 70 grand immediately. And suddenly his flailing law practice is revived Mm -hmm. and he could start he could really it's a really a kind of a new start for him but he's not doing what he's supposed to you know what he's supposed to be doing um so this idea of if i take the money i'm lost i love that phrase i'm lost like there's nowhere it's it not unlike the one before on the we're on the wrong way Mm -hmm. i'm lost it's just you know, it's this image of being out in the woods and you've gone entirely the wrong direction and now you have no idea where you are. But the only, but of course you have to recognize that you have to, as opposed to just charging on through and just, well, if I keep walking straight ahead, surely everything will be fine. Um, like you need to have at least first say, okay, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. So now what? And in the case of Frank Galvin and Michael Clayton, the, they have come to hate each other. Sorry, hate each other. They don't know each other, to my knowledge. Um, they hate themselves. But that can't be where it ends because you can hate yourself and just keep doing what you're doing. And I know from personal experience, sometimes you feel like, well, if I hate myself enough, then I've paid the emotional penance mm-hmm. for doing what I'm doing. And then you just keep doing it. Um, there's no change there. And so here's because you feel like you can't do better. Yeah. It's like, I'm so bad. This is who I am. This is the best I can do. This is my niche <laughs> to, to quote Michael Clayton. Um, all right. But so I found this, you know, it's interesting. I've read through second Corinthians before, uh, but this part didn't, I didn't remember it until I was looking it up until I was looking up, uh, verses that might apply to this. And I love it. Second Corinthians uh, seven verses 10 and 11 godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this go- what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this manner, in this matter, pardon me. There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. That that goes to what we're talking about. Self-hatred doesn't get anything done. In fact, as I as we were kind of talking about a couple weeks ago with the trip, self hatred it starts with a a constant looking at the self and if you're looking at yourself you're only ever going to get so much done for the world you're focusing on yourself even if even if it's to hate yourself you're still focusing on on yourself whereas godly sorrow acknowledges that yes you've done something wrong 
but it's a larger thing than just you. And now what you have, if you've wronged at the, at the moment, I'll say the universe, you've wronged the universe. So now what, but if the universe is God, if the universe is, you know, if, if, and if God has decided that there is a right and wrong, then he and he alone is in a position to say, it's all right. You are not unacceptable. What you did was wrong, certainly, but you're not unacceptable. You're okay. And it, it brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. These are characters with nothing but regret, but regret it's important, but it only takes you so far. Godly sorrow produces earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, which, which sounded strange to me when I first read it. Indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness to see justice done. That is Frank Galvin and Michael Clayton. Both of them <laughs> stop hating themselves and they have a deep desire to see justice done. Frank Galvin could have said, all right, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to be a better person. He literally is willing to lose the case to see justice genuinely done. And that comes from recognizing there's something larger than himself. That's, re that's real redemption. Mm -hmm. Um, so, okay. Uh, first John one nine, Robert, I'm throwing to you. <clears throat> if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That one's fairly self-explanatory. Um, all right. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Robert, take it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All right. I'm almost getting emotional right now because that last scene of Michael Clayton, after he walks out, he gets in a cab, guy says, where to? He says, here's 50 bucks, just drive. Mm -hmm. And it just stays on him and the credits roll. Now, I am a little bummed out that the credits roll because I think it takes our, it, they take our eyes away just a little bit from what George Clooney is doing. It is a look of relief. It is a look of satisfaction, but not self-satisfaction. It is a look of hope. It is, I would venture to say, the look of redemption. He's, he's not on the crooked path. He's not lost. He's not on the wrong way anymore. He has taken a very large step towards the right path, if not just being straight up on the right path. He is a new person and he looks new. He feels mm. new. He's not who he used to be. And so this idea, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that shot at the end of Michael Clayton, that's what it looks like. Mm. There's no self-hatred there. There's not even regret there. There's only promise and hope and excitement. About and also where you're, you're okay. Heading. You're okay with wherever the cab is taking you. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just, boy, oh boy, it's just such a, an amazing thing and something mm -hmm. that I don't think about enough in my own Christian walk. Cause I've, cause I've been Christian long enough that words like redemption and forgiveness and all that kind of thing, <laughs> they mean something, but they don't have the power. Yeah. I say them perhaps more casually than I should. They don't have the power that they used to. If they ever did, because, of course, when you're raised in the church, you just come to accept them. 
but it's a new you're a new thing and if you want at the very least a visual example you just look at michael clayton's face at the end that's <laughs> what it can be that's what redemption and forgiveness and grace looks like when you really accept it and you allow it to change you um but and here's the other thing i was reluctant i wasn't sure which order to put these in but even as you are a new creation you're still going to make mistakes you're still going to sin you're still going to mess up but if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness it's not too late there's no reason i say this as though i live it i don't at all and i need to most of these episodes are just are as much for me as for you. Maybe even, I don't know, 100% more. Um, but, like, there's no reason to hate yourself. It does no good. Worldly sorrow does no good. Godly sorrow will only move you forward. Worldly sorrow only keeps you where you are, if not forces you to take a step backwards. Um, but, like, I don't know. And so it's... It's very exciting, these, these movies and these stories. There's a reason that we like watching them, because we like watching people who are on the wrong path get on the right path. And then I think we go about our lives continuing to be on the wrong path, hating ourselves, um, living lives full of regret. And I'm not saying don't regret anything. It's important to regret, but only if it takes you in, a, in the right direction. And so we will end with a uh, a quote by Soren Kierkegaard. Whoa. Yeah, I know. I decided to get really heavy here at the end. God creates out of nothing. Wonderful, you say. Yes, to be sure. But he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. Wow. I love that. That idea. And the idea that that is a bigger deal. To make something out of nothing certainly is pretty amazing, but to take something that is headed in one direction and do and make it do a complete 180 and have it go in the other direction is to me also pretty amazing. And it's something that we don't think about enough. Yeah. And that is, I'll say it again. That is what I think Christians can get out of a movie like Michael Clayton. It is such a clear-cut example. We see him at the beginning, and we see him at the end. And it's everything we want for ourselves, emotionally, spiritually, philosophically, whatever. Um, and we are given that. We are, that is offered to us. And if you have accepted it, then there is no... You don't have to go back. Much as you may feel like you need to, much as you may feel like you are being pressured to, you don't have to. You can just keep moving forward. You ask for forgiveness, you move on, and you just keep going. New creation. Here's $50. Just drive. Yeah. So, anyway, we've been going for a while. Um, do you think, uh, can you think of anything else that you would like to, to end on, or are we good to go? I think we're good to go. I just tagging onto that though. Um, I like the fact that both of these movies um, have sort of a secular version of the faith, the step of faith, mm -hmm. where uh, I think the the quote that you actually read from Frank Galvin 
crystallizes that. He's like holding the out in his hand. Yeah. It's a $210,000 that could restart his life. He's like, you know what? There's, there's more to this than just this check. There's something else. But I have control now because I could take this and it be over. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to give this back to you and I'm going to see what happens. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. It can go, it could just sink. But it's a step of faith. And it's the same as us taking a step into kind of Michael Clayton in the cab. It's like, here's 50 yeah. bucks. Um, just drive is sort of like Galvin's moment in the chair when he hands back the check. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen next, but it will probably be better than this because of who's driving the cab. Ah, yes. Oh, and you know, and that's, yeah. And that's the thing is he's saying, here's 50 bucks. Well, he doesn't know where he, if he's going to be able to replace that 50 bucks because his job's going to go away Yep. and he doesn't know what's next, but he knows that it's better than where he was. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, and that, that brings up a, a good point that as much as we try to control everything, we're never, it's never going to be under total control. And I have a hard time like giving control over to God and being okay with that. I always want to snatch it back. Oh, it's the hardest thing in the world. Yeah. It's, I would venture <laughs> to say that is, that is true. Yeah. As a human being, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah. And you know what? I mean, I just had a. my wife and I just had a thing happen to us that was very scary in which, uh, that we lost our health insurance and it looked, it was looking like we weren't going to get it back for six months. Yeah. And so it's like six months. That's a lot of, that's a lot of time without health insurance, you know? And I was, I was scared. I was literally scared to drive because if you (laughs) get in a car accident, you get hurt. Our savings is gone. Yeah. And then, you know, and I know that people listening would say, oh, this isn't a, you know, that would have happened anyway. It's not a miracle. Uh, sure. Why not? That's fine. Go ahead. That's fine. Um, but we discovered an option, a perfectly legitimate option uh, Hmm. that we did not know about and would not know about had this one person not told us about it. Hmm. And it's somebody that we wouldn't have necessarily known otherwise. Uh, and, now we are good. Awesome. That's great. And it happened over the weekend. And it's just, and this ha- this kind of thing happens over and over again. We are often taken care of significantly, but I look at the times in which we weren't, or I look at times in which I have friends who have, un- you know, experienced tremendous misfortune. And I think, okay, well, I got to take care of this on my own. But in the end, if you try, think about it, have we, have we talked about a character recently who tried to control everything? Right. The villain in Michael Clayton who literally so badly wants control, she's willing to kill people for it. Mm. And if it's between that and letting go and letting go and taking a risk and taking that leap of faith like you're talking about, Mm -hmm. then that's what it needs to be, obviously. So, yes, thank you for bringing that up. That's very important as well. These these films do tackle a lot of. I think the universal themes, but I think they're also very spiritual themes, Absolutely. control, self-hatred, redemption, mm-hmm. like they're, they're inherently spiritual. So, um, yes, thank you for bringing that up. That's something I hadn't really thank thought Thank you about. for, uh, mentioning Michael Clayton because I, I think I probably would have never watched it again had it not been for this context. Well, it's I'm, a great movie. Absolutely. It is. And I, I so badly want, you know what? I'm quitting my job so I can watch Michael Clayton. Do you know that I'm not going to work today in the time that we've been talking, you could have almost watched it again. Hmm. Now you've brought up a debate. 
we could and it's is it more beneficial to talk about movies hmm. when we could be watching them hmm. now we should talk i agree yeah listener if you've not seen michael clayton even though i think we've spoiled some of it uh believe me here's the thing i already know what happens in it and i desperately want to see it yeah. right now it is same with the verdict is, same with the verdict wonderful acting beautiful films uh that i think you will definitely enjoy so seek them out robert thank you so much for being here you got it this is a lot of fun uh i want to remind everybody uh that you can go to more than one com for uh various uh, reviews and mini sodes and episodes and that sort of thing i would encourage you to please like us on facebook this is different than the facebook group i'm going to be closing that soon uh, so if you go to more than one lesson.com and on the side, there's a link that says Facebook, click on that, like us on Facebook, uh, because that group is going to be closing. So please do that soon. Uh, and I think that is about it. If you have any questions, you can email me Tyler at more than one lesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. So Robert, once again, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank and you. thank you guys for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye.